By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Here we are. It's the middle of September. Summer has come to a close and many employers have been signaling to their workers that the time has come to return to the office. But after more than two years of remote and hybrid work ushered in by the pandemic, a lot of workers are less enthusiastic about the idea. Today we ask, what's the future of work and how will it affect the outlook for office-related assets and local governments? I'm your host, William Foster, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. It's great to be back with all new episodes of our podcast after a summer hiatus. I'm joined today by three guests with a lot of experience on this topic. From Moody's Investor Service, we have Ranjini Venkatasan, who analyzes real estate investment trusts, and Nick Samuels, an analyst with our U.S. Public Finance Group. Rounding out today's panel is Victor Kalinog, head of commercial real estate economics at Moody's Analytics. And before we start, before we jump in, I should note that different divisions within our parent company, Moody's Corporation, may have different views on topic and that views expressed by a podcast participant from one division shouldn't be attributed to those of guests from other divisions. I'd also like to note that we're talking today about workers who have the luxury of working from home or in hybrid situations, and not every worker has these options. Some never stop going into work during the entire pandemic, something which I imagine we're going to cover quite a bit in this episode. With that on our way, Victor, I'd like to start with you. And I see from your video that you are not in the office today. You're at home. Is this a typical day for you? It is actually, Bill. Uh, I end up traveling quite a bit for work. And so I sometimes show up at Seven World Trade where our offices are. However, if I've traveled during the week, I kind of want to like beg off and say, I'm working from home. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people are obviously in that situation right now and trying to figure out what the right balance is. Uh, So more than two years after the initial COVID lockdowns, a lot of office workers still aren't back at their desks, particularly in the U.S. Why is this? What's holding them back? I think this, there's been continued fear of things like the safety of public transport. That tends to affect places like dense urban areas, which was also the epicenter or early epicenter of the COVID outbreak. Uh, we're looking at a lot of employees having greater bargaining power against employers, basically saying, we've been productive all this time. Why are you trying to bring us back to the office when we've shown that we can do all that kind of work uh, from the safety and or comfort of our home? So it's a, a multifaceted question, Will uh, Bill. And from our end, what we're seeing from the data that we track is that it certainly resulted in elevated office vacancies. We're still at 18.4% vacancy rate. As of the second quarter of 2022, that's not very far from the pandemic highs of 18.5%, which we hit middle of last year. So Ranjini, what is the shift away from the office more to in-home work? What does this mean for property managers and REITs that own traditional office spaces? I think prima facie, say all of them have to start reassessing their portfolios to see where they have leasing risk, where they have upcoming lease expirations, where uh, where tenants could be walking out. Uh, I think a lot of them have 
use this opportunity to also identify properties that do not fit with what they expect tenants will be looking for in the long term. So they want to be in markets which are likely to grow. They want to be in buildings that are likely to grow. On a more operational level, we think that obviously to what Victor was pointing out, there has been pressure on vacancy. There, have been, there has been pressure on rent spreads. Uh, in the, but the impact we've seen on the rated portfolio, we rate 10 office REITs that own generally higher quality properties in their respective markets. The impact has been more muted than what we've seen for the broader market. Uh, we also noticed that there has been a flight to quality with respect to leasing. And so landlords have used this disruption to in part upgrade their properties or bring on new properties into the market that will have better leasing dynamics in the future. The other aspect that has been much written about is that coastal markets like where we are in New York City or San Francisco, the return to office has been more challenged. And uh, Sunbelt markets, not all of them, some of them have uh, are seeing favorable leasing trends. So that that is another dynamic that will influence where investors put their money. Nick, could you tell us how is this shift to remote work impacting the vibrancy of cities? Yeah, Bill, thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me. I mean, this is a really interesting question, right? Because to the extent that employers allow this degree of remote work or even allow becoming full-time remote workers like I have become during this period, they've traded city living and city working for this new type of arrangement. So, you know, that does really have impact um, on cities. And there's there's two really interesting um, sets of data that we look at that, that help illustrate this. You know, one is an index that Moody's Analytics does called the Back to Normal Index that is this set of economic measures that compares state-level economies pre-COVID to now. And it's really interesting that at this point in the pandemic, two years or not quite three years since it started, only three states are exceeding their pre-pandemic level. And how does that impact the creditworthiness of, of the cities and of the microeconomies that depend on them in terms of the services sector around offices? And how are you seeing that play out? Yeah. So we need to think about that also with the return to office that, that you've mentioned and, and, and Victor had some, some numbers on, right? Because we also um, think about data that shows, you know, across the biggest cities, how many employees are back to work? And, you know, one of these measures from a company called Castle that manages these building turnstile um, access points shows that for the 10 biggest metros, occupancy rates are only um, at 43%. And for the, for the best of those, it's only at 60%. And that's even in some areas where um, the COVID era lockdowns weren't as severe as some other places. That points to something that, you know, is really different now. But there has been an impact on local government's finances. And in, in some cases, that happened earlier on. So I'll, I'll give you know, a couple examples. Um, uh, you know, as commercial rents fell and as office vacancy rates fell, property tax revenue declined also. And, and every city uh, does its valuations differently and calculations a bit differently. But you know, for example, property taxes in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and New York City all declined, driven both by offices and also hotels. So in, in New York City for the fiscal year that just ended in, in June 2022, the decline was about 5%. So it's had real impact. Which cities were impacted the most in the U.S.? I guess you mentioned New York, but are there others that have been 
as significantly hit. Yeah, sure. You know, like I said, San Francisco and Washington, D.C., you said in your intro, right, that we're really talking about workers for whom remote work is really possible based on the types of jobs that they have. And those are, you know, that's the case really in cities that have these big knowledge economies. Lots of tech workers in San Francisco and San Jose area easily can work from home. Lots of federal government employees and and tech workers in the D.C. region easily can work from home. And lots of workers in, in the New York City area easily can work from home. The other phenomenon is it's not just people who have moved to the suburbs or the exurbs. They've moved to completely new places where they might not have ever considered living um, pre-pandemic. And, you know, so there probably are also some gainers there, the places like Austin and Nashville and so on, where people have moved to. Nick, let, let, let me just share a personal anecdote from my end. I just came from San Francisco literally less than 12 hours ago. This was absolutely the talk of the uh, period. It's literally, hey, when are we getting a vibrant office daytime population back? It's not quite returned. It's really influencing a lot of folks. It's anecdotal, yes, but it's influencing how people feel about taking public transport and crime and safety just because there's fewer people out on the street streets. And that affects how you feel about going to the city in the first place, showing up to the office versus your hybrid work options. Yeah, for certain. And I think, you know, that phenomenon is really the case, right, for central business districts, the places where pre-pandemic we went to work. You know, it's it's possible now we know anecdotally in neighborhoods and cities where people live and now are spending even more time because they're not going to work. You know, there may be some more vibrancy there. There's been some shift around. But in in downtowns or central business districts, those are feeling some real pain. When we think about the the future of work, obviously there's a lot going on in terms of experimentation right now, and and we are it's a journey. Uh, we're not at the destination quite yet. But Victor, turning to you, when you think about the future of the workplace, and keeping in mind some of the things that Nick just mentioned about about what's going on in different cities, what do you envision as some of the changes in the new workplace models that might be taking hold? I think that a lot of office operators are trying to figure out what it really takes to bring employees back to the office. And some of the trends we're seeing from leasing and brokerage company partners is that they're really trying to come up with ways to drum up the amenities and the reasons as to why you should gather with intent in the office. It's no longer the whole, well, it's five days a week. You're expected to be at work. Uh, A lot of folks are basically saying, hey, what should motivate people to go to work and how can we implement that? One of the greatest uh, stories I read recently was about how Zoom has an office, right? Zoom employees actually gather in the office, apparently not to work, but for brown bag lunches, educational initiatives, getting together with their workmates. And then they split up and then they go and say, okay, then we can do the quote unquote work work via our Zoom platform. So I think we're still evolving. To your point, Bill, it's a journey, but a lot of experimentation is taking place. If I may add, everybody realizes that hybrid is going to become more mainstream. Then you have the extremes of people who never want to be back in the office. And then there is a very, very tiny population that wants to probably be in five days a week. Uh, But how the hybrid works is something that tenants, you know, the the office occupiers, as we call them, are trying to figure out because to Victor's point, when they want to have people coming into the office, the employees don't want to do the work that they do at home in the office. It better be collaborative. It better be productive. There has to be an element of innovation to it. And 
if they're coming into the office, if they want to avoid the Zoom fatigue we've all had in the last two years. They want to avoid that isolation. Uh, there is this whole aspect of the new worker who's joined the roles, payrolls in the last two years. They have no sense of culture of the company. They want the mentoring. So those attributes are what the occupier and to some extent the landlord for their part want to highlight in having people come back into the office. Uh, the other aspect to think about is everybody wants to be in the office on the same days. And that comes to this whole peak utilization concept when we all want to work from home on Monday or Friday and be in the office on Tuesday to Thursday. So that influences how the office is structured too. And Ranjini, are we seeing any direct impact yet on renewals of commercial office leases? Uh, renewals of commercial office leases for most part in the rated universe are, is slightly weaker than what we saw pre-pandemic, but not too much of an impact. And this is in part because uh, the sophisticated landlord is going to deal with their large renewals well before expiration. So they're talking to their tenant 12, 18 months before they're scheduled to leave. And so they have a good sense of whether the tenant plans to be there or not. Uh, but what we're observing at the margins is there are some amount of consolidation of office spaces. So if you had three buildings in the city, you're probably consolidating into two, you're reducing the number of floors. Uh, the other piece of it, which is picked up steam in the last 12 to 18 months is that the the whole flight to quality concept the tenants are thinking about you know this is the time i can get a bargain lease in a great building i'm going to go and get that and how long are these leases typically i mean it's very different than the retail market right and just for for context and and also you know what is the credit implications for these issuers so the leases tend to be very long. Uh, five, 10 years is the norm. And even when they go up for renewals, they are five-year-long leases. Uh, so you don't have too much expiring in the rated portfolio over the next 18 months, I would say probably 10% to 15% of the leases come up for renewal, uh, also because they've dealt with a lot in the past. So it's not a huge concern, but the longer this uh, weakness in the market persists, you know, things will come to roost at some point. Uh, the other aspect is, of course, uh, as they come up for renewal, the tenants will also ask for improvements in their space, tenant improvements, as we call it, because this is the time for them to strike the deal. I will share something to add to that, Ranjini. We have seen early effects based on the uh, sample that we collect for leases all over the country, not just for the rated universe. We found an interesting result. Typically, there are shorter-term leases signed around one year or less. They're usually for smaller tenants, but if you include them in the mix in 2021, the proportion of shorter leases signed one year or less rose from an historic average of about 10 12% to a high of about 34%. Clearly, a lot of the smaller tenants were pretty gun-shy about making that longer commitment, and that might persist. And Victor, you know, the, we're in a challenging macro backdrop right now with rising interest rates, uh, the Federal Reserve is, is it continues to hike. What does this mean from your perspective? I, I do think that the office sector does have a crosshair target painted on its back. And I think it's an easy target for companies that are feeling the squeeze on their margins to go and say some refrain of this. We are going to divest ourselves of underutilized office space and reinvest in rewarding and retaining our best people just because of how tight the labor market is. So in the near term, I think there's a little bit more risk for the office sector just because of all the uncertainty we've been talking about and because of that probability that there might be some kind of economic disruption. 
And if I may add, compared to a sector like multifamily housing, where uh, the lease is coming up for renewal every year and they can pass on the rate hike, you know, the cost of inflation, an office lease doesn't come up for renewal very often. So they have to eat the operating expense increase while not getting any upside on the revenue. One really important aspect uh, that gets attention today, obviously, is ESG, uh, Environmental Social Governance. Uh, assessments and, and Moody's among investors and issuers is very much focused on that. And f- when we think about the S in ESG, the social perspective, obviously there's there's a lot that's going on with regards to the social impact from this remote work and, and the broader impact that COVID has had on, on society uh, as a result. I'm curious to all of you, you know, what your views are on, on some of the social implications of this and, and how you characterize them from a credit perspective, maybe starting with you, Nick, as you look at cities uh, and the impact from a municipal perspective. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, like we've said throughout uh, our discussion, remote work is really a phenomenon for a certain category of worker who work in offices, but there's a whole set of people in the service industry, people who clean buildings, who work in hotels, who work in restaurants, Um, first responders, nurses in hospitals, so on and so forth, for whom the work has to be done in the place. So, you know, there, there, I think, has been this pressure on governments um, to buttress types of services for them, like childcare, for example, Um, or even, I mean, Victor mentioned this earlier on, a sector that's really been hit hard by the collateral damage of this has been the mass transit sector. But governments maintain these mass transit systems um, largely to subsidize rides for people, but obviously with lower rates of working in downtown offices, ridership has suffered. Now, most of our U.S. mass transits are funded by dedicated taxes, but some really big ones like the Metropolitan Transportation Authority in New York, they rely on fare box revenue, and that's way down. And that puts more pressure on parent governments to create um, new types of tax subsidies or increased tax subsidies. That's something that was already going on um, before the pandemic, but the pressure is much more intense now. Victor? Yeah, just in general, what I worry about is that cities are fantastic melting pots, right? We end up bumping into people that we ne- might, might not necessarily have chosen to hang out with. And as we choose more and more, it's been happening over time. If we choose more and more to really just do the hybrid thing in our own communities and to really hang out more and gather with intent with people of like mind, I wonder what the social discourse will be if we're not exposed to diverse points of view. And I, I do worry about, and Robert Putnam wrote about this a long time, ago in terms of social capital, his book Bowling Alone, and so on and so forth. What is the implication for society if we're not being exposed to those different conversations that we would have been prior to all of this happening? I do want to make sure that we, we look outside the U.S. and, and more globally, and, and particularly, in, you know, we look at the commercial real estate market and REITs market. I know, Ranjini, um, you know, you have looked at this in context relative to the, to the U.S. Could you comment on what you're seeing in terms of the impact in other cities globally relative to what we're seeing here in the US? Uh, it is some of the same underlying factors. It is the factors of how the dynamics of office usage. So if it's a market that has a lot of reliance on mass transit, the knowledge worker, uh, that's more amenable to hybrid work. And so people have been come back in droves compared to uh, smaller cities in Eastern Europe uh, where they might be uh, connectivity issues or uh, they might be easier access in terms of commute to the CBDs, central business districts uh, where people are back in higher uh, volumes. We also noticed that in APAC that uh, 
more uh, office utilization numbers have been pretty healthy for a big portion of this year, in part because of the societal uh, situation out there that it's less convenient for people to work from home out there uh, than it is here. So I think it depends on the market uh, that you are analyzing. We're now at our lightning round question. What's an aspect of the future of work that hasn't gotten a lot of attention that you think investors should consider? Start with you, Ranjini. Um, I think now that we all know that this hybrid work environment is here to stay, uh, we think that tenants and landlords would be thinking about how to upgrade the technology aspect of their offerings to make this whole thing seamless. Uh, the second one, which I would, would say has been getting a lot of attention recently, is that uh, tenants will be more focused on the green credentials of their building. Uh, employees and employers want to be in green buildings, and uh, landlords have to take that into consideration. Victor? On to you. I think that we don't get a whole lot of stories and questions about the potential long-term effects of hybrid working on your career and compensation. I do wonder if it's going to be an issue three to five years from now if proximity bias is true and traditional leadership and management hasn't evolved quite yet, that the folks who show up at the office more often get promoted faster than the folks who chose a hybrid platform. Now, we always have implicit case, right? I think in general, folks would accept that if you're in a backwater branch of your company, your career would be slower versus if you're in HQ where decisions were being made. But is that going to be the new paradigm where hybrid is the new backwater office? And is that going to be a problem when the company starts on day one saying, we support both? Right, So I do think, uh, I wonder if over time, five years from now, that's going to become a centrifugal force pulling more people back to the office or not. Still very TBA. And Nick, you get the final word. Great. So, I mean, this is a public finance angle, but, you know, a lot of the pandemic era moves of people were out of higher cost areas to ostensibly lower cost ones. But as more people move to places like Austin or Nashville, that's driving costs up and creating new financing needs for public employees and public infrastructure. And so maybe that mutes some of their competitive advantages. And where does it create new competitive advantages? What opportunities are there for other cities? Ranjini, Victor, Nick, thanks so much. That's all we have time for today. Until next time, I'm William Foster, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.